Hello, it's Anthony Chadwick from the Webinar Vets, welcoming you to another episode of Vet Chat, the UK's number one veterinary podcast. And I'm really, really pleased to have Vicky Wentworth with me today. Vicky is the CEO of Argria UK. Um, I've met Vicky on several occasions now, the last time at the Nature's Safe event, where we were talking all about how to conserve endangered species. What a great setting at the Natural History Museum, Vicky. Oh, God, wasn't it just the most incredible environment? And, you know, you can't help but be in awe. And some of the messaging we heard, I think, you know, 17 species going extinct of flora, fauna and um, animals every single day. I mean, it's, it was just extraordinary. We're going to be talking a bit about uh, sustainability and welfare uh, later on in the podcast, but it's also fascinating. I love doing these podcasts because I learn so much by doing them. And I must admit, I've met you a few times, been really impressed uh, having met you and, and learning now a bit of the back history. You, of course, started your career with 10 years in the army. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, geez, I'll take that compliment, Anthony. Um, so, yeah, really, really lucky, actually. I feel like I have been given um, a second wind, if you know what I mean, by being in pet insurance now. But, yeah, I started my career in the military. I had a very rudimentary selection criteria for the job that I wanted to do. I said, oh, I quite like travel. Um, I really like people and I like variety. I know what, <laughs> I'll join the army. I mean, I literally, I look back now and I think my problem solving, um, I hope it's developed since those days. But um, yeah, I what a great opportunity. I spent 10 years in the army. I went to Sandhurst, um, did multiple jobs, was lucky enough to go on a lot of tours. It was when there were a lot of um, different geographical locations that the army was um, sort of sent out to. So I did Bosnia, Kosovo, Northern Ireland, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, yeah, and I culminated my career with probably one of the best jobs in the military, which was squadron command. I had 300 soldiers who I took to Iraq. Um, we did casualty evacuation from the front line. The most humbling, rewarding, but also probably the most challenging role I have ever had and probably ever want to have, if I'm honest. I think the army gives you that, uh, really prepares you um, with the skills that you have in um, learning in the army to, to take that very much into civilian life as a leader in civilian life. And I know fairly quickly after you left the army, you moved to Aviva and into insurance where you've spent the last 17 years. But at the same time, it, it can also, um, for the lower ranks, there's a lot of homelessness amongst lower ranks. There's a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, I'm a supporter of the British Legion because I think the work that the army do is so so important but sometimes do you feel that the soldiers get forgotten about when they come back from the front line by government and so on um well i mean when they're in the military there is a real family culture so they get very well looked after with within that military environment um what tends to happen is when they leave the military um, there's not always the right support mechanisms in place to make sure that that transition into the civilian world is as seamless as it could be. And actually, a lot of people find it really difficult to do that transition. I often hear people even say to me, you know, God, you're so lucky you've done, you know, look at what you've done. You know, you've got a second career. But I always think, yeah, you know what, the harder I work, the luckier I get. 
It's, um, you know, I burnt midnight oil um, and I shed tears at how difficult it was to make the transition between the military and uh, civilian industry. I mean, we speak a different language um, between yeah. the two. So, um, you know, the army is, it does an awful lot. And I, you know, I genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, can't tell people enough how much it cares about its soldiers. Mm. Um and there are all sorts of organisations out there, as you well know, you know, SAFA, the Army Benevolent Fund, you know, the British Legion, that are actually there to support our veterans. Um, so, you know, it's it is just a desperately sad situation, isn't it? You know, um, some people do sadly fall off those rails. Hmm. I suppose there is such great camaraderie in the army and, and it's building those sort of teams. Presumably, you've brought some of those skills into your jobs in insurance. But I suppose asking a little bit of a personal question, Vicky, you know, are uh, the army, can it be a bit autocratic? And do you then bring that into uh, into the insurance jobs? Or or is, is that just an urban myth? No, so, um, so I suppose there is absolutely, I mean, as you know, there are multiple types of leadership, yeah? Leadership styles and autocratic is one of them. Um, and of course, there is a time and a place for autocratic leadership in the military, because if you are taking out the enemy and your mission is to kill or neutralise the enemy position, there's no room for, oh, do you know what? I just fancy having a tea break now or I'll do it tomorrow or, you know, I'll go and do another and something else that sort of interests me a little bit more. So that's when autocratic leadership is really important. But the great thing about the military is it teaches you um, something that we would call mission command. So you get told what you need to do, but you don't get told how to do it. And actually that empowers people from quite a junior sort of level in the military to own the plan, um, to come up with their own plan and to own it. Um, So to answer your question, yes, of course, there is autocratic leadership um, in the military, but there's also an awful lot of other styles. And if I was to say the three things that are probably the most prevalent that I think the military taught me that I've been able to apply, I hope successfully or with partial success in industry. First one is leadership. Every single person requires a slightly different style of leadership, probably on a different day and maybe even at a different hour. And having the emotional intelligence to be able to work out what you're receiving when you talk to somebody, are they stressed? Are they tired? Have they had a bad trip into work? Are they really energized and motivated and really up for having a creative conversation? So adaptive leadership is something that I think is really important. The other two things, one is problem solving, really effective problem solving. So quite strategic thinking, sort of we would say big hand, small mat sort of stuff. So big helicopter view on the problem, nailing it down and being able to really come into. So what does this mean? How do you? How do you start to define the deliverables and the actions um, as a result of that bigger problem having been articulated? And then the other one, um, which should come as no surprise to you, is resilience. Um, Mm. You are put in enormously stressful situations very, very early, even at Sandhurst, you know, through training. And the point is, when the bullets are coming in, I was, you know, an officer on operational tour with soldiers. I couldn't afford to lose my cool. If I'm going to pieces, how on earth can I lead my soldiers? So you build an extraordinary amount of resilience. And in my career, interestingly, I've had some bosses say to me, um, 
you just seem as if you don't really care. You know, it's all gone wrong. And you and I say to them, you have no idea. The diff, Of course I care. I genuinely, deeply, deeply care. I'm just not stratospheric. You know, what help, What good is that to my team? If I'm on the ceiling flapping around and they see that, you know, how on earth can I expect them to maintain their cool and, you know, keep a, you know, a really balanced view and start to problem solve through whatever it is that's happened? So, um, yeah, so they would the be... cool head is, is important, isn't it? And I always use the analogy of a swan looks very graceful, but it isn't half paddling uh, fast with its little feet underneath the water. Yeah. I don't know whether I'm a swan duck, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely a swan. Definitely a swan. So obviously you've been in insurance for 17 years and in the last couple of years moved into animal insurance. You're obviously an animal lover. So tell us, what what have you got at home? What's the menagerie at home look like? How long have you got? <laughs> so, um, I've got um, a horse who I have had for 11 years. I bought him as a complete lunatic. He's still a complete lunatic, but he's just, he's adorable. Um, I love him. I compete on him. Um, I compete at British Eventing. So I compete as an amateur against professionals. I have beaten some professionals. Um, that's mostly because my horse is really great and talented and I've spent a lo- lot of time and money getting trained myself. So I've got him. Um, I have a Shetland who I bought as a companion, but he's also for my little boy. He's really cute. He's called Tiny Tim. He's absolutely adorable. Um, I've got um, two dogs, um, one, both German shorthead pointers. Um, One I've recently rescued from one of our rehoming partners. Um, They contacted me desperate for this dog to be rehomed out of a flat in London. She's a year and a half old, was just too much, just too much of a handful. I've had a six months She's the sweetest animal and is actually really beginning to, I don't know, find her feet. And actually, I genuinely feel like from the inside out, she's confident now in her space, if that makes sense. Um, And I've got a cat who I rescued and I've got eight battery hens who I also rescued, who came just no feathers, skinny, spawny, not an ounce of fat on them. They are now beautiful, plump brown brazen girls who like who run across run across the pen at me when they see me coming so yeah I've rescued more than half of the menagerie that I have (laughs) I think it's so important you know and I don't know if we do enough as vets I'm pretty insistent wherever I go hotel wise are these eggs free range now I know we've got the issues at the moment with avian flu and everything and I you know I understand there's the barn versus the battery uh, what a horrendous way to bring up chickens and, you know, to produce eggs. And the quicker that I know that we now have enriched battery cages, but, you know, it can't be enriched enough as far as I'm concerned. We should really be pushing for eating less eggs, but the eggs we eat should be of good uh, quality from a welfare perspective. And I, I think it was fascinating what you talked about before about your German short haired pointer. Do you think is there a place for insurance companies to get involved with and how do we do it? It's really difficult, isn't it? Somebody decides to get a puppy or a cat. There really is no sort of process. You know, they can look on the internet and pick up a German short-haired pointer, maybe from the UK, maybe from abroad. We've got this terrible sort of um, import process that's going on that's uh, fraught with difficulties as well. How do we sort that problem out of somebody getting a completely inappropriate 
pet, you know, be it a Rottweiler in a small flat, as you said, a German short-haired pointer. How do you think um, we can sort that out? And do pet insurance companies like Agria have something to do about that as well? So, um, yes, I think the answer is yes. I do think we have um, we have a role to play for sure. I think the first thing is um, helping potential owners get the, to get to the right source of information. So how on earth can you choose a pet that's appropriate to your lifestyle? So don't choose a Bengal cat if you're going to be out all day and you live in a flat and mm. um, it's going to need excessive stimulus and it's not going to have it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's going to end up yeah. being a nuisance. Um, similarly, don't have a Rottweiler in a flat in London where you can't walk it every you know a couple of times a day and you can't let it off the lead and it can't run. Um, so education is really, really important. How do we get the right information to the customers to enable them to make the right choices? I think the breeders have a role to play. Um, I, don't, I think they have a, quite um, an ethical role to play in not allowing customers to take the wrong type of dog into the environment that they might be taking it into. Um, now, I know that's probably quite an emotive topic, um, but you know what? When you look at a German short-haired pointer who's very cute at 12 weeks old, you don't know what you're letting yourself in for until it's fully grown, and then it's a it's a real handful. It's got separation anxiety because they're prone to it. You know, it's used to sleeping on your bed, but it's now really big. Um, it doesn't like it when you go out. It wrecks your house because it's you. It's followed you to the toilet. You know, six times mm-hmm. a day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think the breeders have um, quite a big role to play, and then I think from an insurance perspective. We work with, well, we've got over 500 rehoming partners now. And um, I know that the rehoming partners that we work with are really, really, um, they just sit on the right side of the fence when it comes to allowing the right pet to go to the right home. And they would rather not rehome the pet than have it go to the wrong home. Does that make sense? So um, we obviously have our five week free insurance for rehoming and veterinary partners. And, you know, that helps people to um, make that transition as they rehome a pet. But I think um, let's not have pets go into rehoming in the first place. You know, mm. It is very much this. around education, isn't it? And I know yeah. recently I was involved in a podcast series that Argery had started off with Adam Henson, very much trying to educate pet parents as well. Well, my um, so the behavioural stuff that we're doing at the moment around being able to identify behavioural aspects in your pet that might mean that it's under stress or duress or perhaps it isn't as happy as it could be was actually born out of my German short-haired pointer um, that I rescued because she was manifesting all of the signs of a highly stressed pet um, that wasn't wasn't having her basic needs met. Uh, so you know, part of part of what we're doing around that behavior piece is trying to help customers understand if you see this behavior manifesting, you know, itself in your pet, then the chances are there's something missing and this is what it might be. Does that make sense? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. No, no, really important. And obviously chatting also about your eventing. I mean, the horses are expensive creatures to keep, let's face it. Uh, But I know you've, in the last year or two, developed a, a really interesting equine product uh, that sounds very innovative. So perhaps just tell us a little bit about what you've been up to, because you you haven't had a, 
a horse policy as far as I'm aware. You've always just been dogs and cats. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Although um, I know that most people will understand that we're owned by a Swedish parent. So we, our Swedish parent actually was the first insurance company in the world to insure a horse. It was the first insurance policy that the company did, and that was in 1890. So we've been insuring horses for a really long time, and we have a lot of data around horses. One of the reasons I was recruited, probably the only reason maybe, um, was because of this equine insurance. So we now offer a really innovative market-leading and totally market-disrupting product. It's a lifetime product, which means that if you insure your animal early, there are never any pre-existing or um, conditions or exclusions. So the ideal would be somebody comes to us before an animal has any ailments at all, insures that horse, the insurance policy moves with the horse through the course of its life. So if you're a breeder, you sell to the first customer with that horse, the insurance policy moves with the horse and then subsequently on. It just means that ailments that horses do get, like ulcers or sarcoids or navicular or, you know, whatever it might be, you never have to worry about um, the welfare and the long term health of that animal. It's just, you know, I know that a few of the vets um, were saying right at the beginning, oh, it's too good to be true. And then actually what we got when we were chatting to some vets and we explained it and they saw it and they were like, oh, my God, it really is true. Um, Yeah. So absolutely proud as punch to have such a fabulous product um, that keeps our horses, our four-legged friends, healthier for longer. But as you know, we're synonymous with lifetime. That's all we offer. We only Mm. want to be a lifetime provider. We, We don't want 12 month churn and exclusions we we want pets to be healthier for longer it's all about the welfare of the pet and peace of mind for the owner and i think that's really innovative that the insurance stays with the pets or with the horse rather than you know people moving around and as as horses possibly do more than than uh, dogs and cats you know they tend to stay with one owner dogs and cats whereas horses may move around particularly if they're eventers or or horse or show jumpers or whatever do you know what, Anthony? You're so you're so right, and it's something that um, that has really struck me since I've been in this role. You know, if a dog or a cat is rehomed, we have the utmost emotional connection with that animal and say, "Oh God, that's really sad." You know that that animal's been taken away from its home. The irony is, a horse is much more of a um, of a herd breed. You know, they like to be in numbers. They run in numbers when they're under threat. Yeah. So actually, they they connect on a completely different level with the other animals, the other horses that they might well be with on, on a particular yard. And yet we think nothing about selling a horse and moving it multiple times in its life. And then we wonder why they get ulcers and behavioral problems and, you know, and, and, and. Well, you know, it's because um, we just don't put the same lens over horse ownership as we do. I know they're much more expensive, you know, on the whole. And, you know, we ask them to do a completely different job. But actually something about that long term welfare and sort of health for the animal. We we cause some of those problems as humans, if you know what I mean. They're also not designed to carry a human on their back. And yet that's what we ask them to do. You would never do that, even to a big dog, would you? <laughs> it, it's it's interesting. I don't want to anthropomorphize and over-sentimentalize, but one of my favorite books growing up was Anna Sewell's Black Beauty. It's such a beautiful oh. book, isn't it? 
Oh, I know. I mean, what what horse lover hasn't hasn't read that book or watched yeah. the film International Velvet? Yeah, gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous, uh, gorgeous story. We've sort of talked about the welfare considerations, and I think how important insurance um, can be involved in that. But I suppose from a a kind of completely different area. We also have to talk about, and I know it's a passion of yours and certainly is a passion of mine around regeneration and sustainability. Um, mm. Insurance companies more and more now, general insurance companies have got to look at mitigation for things like flooding and so on. But it's so important that we consider um, and begin to become more aware of how can we have sustainable pet ownership because they are a luxury item, I suppose, in some ways. We don't need a dog or a cat in our lives and yet they bring so much joy and and um, help with our mental uh, you health as well. You wash that with soapy water. Of course we need pets in our life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know I do mean that, but li- we don't absolutely need them, but they bring so much to us from a mental perspective, don't they? Yeah. Um, how how do insurance companies make sure um, that they're staying uh, close to that, but also being sustainable as well? What are the sort of things that, that you should be doing and you should be encouraging the the whole veterinary industry to be thinking about? So we are working with loads of partners now. As you well know, we're carbon positive, yeah? I mean, um, I have a team here that is truly, truly engaged with um, sustainability. I'm also a complete eco-warrior, so much the bane of my family. <laughs> so, but I really believe that you know, the environment today, we need to protect it as far as we possibly can for tomorrow. You know, mm. I've got a son, I don't want him to, you know, I've, I want the place to be beautiful for him too. Does that make sense? And, yeah. and I think this sustainability, leaving um, a legacy that is as good as, if not better tomorrow than it is today is really important. So being carbon positive was one of our key modus operandi. Um, secondly, I think in terms of sustainable pet ownership, you know, we need an environment for our pets to exist. And there is there are certain elements where, you know, if that part of the environment doesn't exist, then pets aren't as happy. So if they're not as happy, then we have, you know, distressed pets, higher vet bills and actually upset owners. So there's something about the environment that we keep our pets in, which is also really important. And that sustainable pet ownership, keeping it alive. Um, they all need the environment. But I think in terms of we work with quite a few partners now across multiple industries, in fact, around um, helping people understand how we became carbon positive and the sorts of things that we're doing. A lot of people would turn around and say, well, yeah, of course, you know, you can plant some trees. And we do run marketing campaigns whereby, you know, if you come and um, if you convert a policy with us, yes, we'll plant a tree or several, depending on what the campaign is for um, on behalf of that policy but it's not just about planting trees this is about you know the effort that goes into the building you know the environmental lighting that goes off when you're not in the room you know sort of like not having your heating quite so hot about you know electric charging points moving all of our vehicles across to hybrid um, or full electric vehicles so we're not got diesel guzzlers out on the on the roads all the time um, but there's just a multitude of things. We've bought Amazonian rainforest, which is sectioned off, which can't be cold for firewood or housing or, you know, so um, we're helping the orangutans in Borneo in Indonesia. You know, so there's are we, we're drilling um, wells in Africa to support sort of like sustainable life 
um, in an environment which is really inhospitable, as you well know. So actually, we're really invested in this. And it's not just about being able to go to the Woodland Trust and plant 300 trees, if that makes sense. Mm. It's multifaceted mm. and it needs to be to be able to have the impact that's required. Well, I- I know that uh, Janet and myself went to Manchester to plant some trees just before Christmas, which was <laughs> really exciting. And we survived. <laughs> yes, we survived. Yes, it was really, really good. And uh, I, I think trees are a real symbol of hope, aren't they? And actually, we are. I I think it's a real responsibility that we have as leaders to actually uh, share good news stories and be hopeful because there is so mm. much pessimism. You know, you get onto the news. You see all the terrible things happening, shootings, obviously the terrible war in um, in the Ukraine and, and Russia. And it's so important that we give people hope by telling good stories because bad news sells, but actually it depresses people as well, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. But of course, it's de- desperately sad, isn't it? And, you know, one of the things that we did last year, we try and every single event we run now is carbon neutral at best. Mm. Um, sorry, no, at least. Um, carbon yeah. neutral but last year rather than giving away um, intangible things to guests at a hospitality event we actually gave them all a native British tree to take yeah. away um, yeah. and they took them away and we said to them look if you don't want to take it home they were only relatively small sort of a foot high if you don't want to take it away then actually the site that we're on is willing to plant it because they're that's what yeah. they're aiming to do plant 200 acres of, of woodland but native British deciduous trees yeah which, let's face it, there's just not enough of that deciduous woodland in the UK anymore. Plant the right trees in the right places. We are the least wooded country in Europe and the most nature-denuded country in the G7. So I think we as a nation have to start walking our talk. And so thank you for for what you're doing as well. Can I tell you one other thing that's so exciting? We also support the bees. So um, we give give away seeds um, on certain campaigns that are bee-friendly, but actually, we've also launched on our website the carbon um, paw print calculator. So you can go on and you can have a look at what your carbon footprint is for your pet or pets. Um, yeah. And you can offset it. So my pets, I know each a German pointer is 71 uh, litres of CO2. And I can, I've offset that. It cost me £11 um, per dog. You know, And yeah. actually, all that goes back into the environment. So... Um, yeah, so talking about things that we're trying to do to help educate people and to support the environment, that is obviously something quite tangible. I um, had a cat, uh, Vicky, who adopted me during the pandemic. As you know, you never own a cat, so I'm just become a <laughs> member of his staff. And he, he tells me when he wants to be fed. He tells me when he wants the door opened. He tells me when he wants to stroke. He was a little um, tiger when he came in. He's a little ginger cat. I was afraid of him, and I am a vet, um, but I have similarly offset him as well. Yeah, so, well uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's uh, well there's so many things we can. There are so many things we can do. He's not even my pet, and I've offset him. So, uh, if you are listening out there, if you are listening out there, then do please look at potentially offsetting your pet because it, it can make a real difference. I think if one person does it, it's not a big deal, but if a million people did it, it becomes a really big deal, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget, this is all about the UK. Because actually, you know, it's all very well being carbon positive and investing money in other countries. But actually, the environment that our pets live in and that we exist in is here. 
So we've yeah. got to do our utmost to make sure that this is, you know, brilliant tomorrow as as much as it is today. And that sort of lovelier environment, you know, this 30 by 30 by 2030, we'll have 30% of our land much more biodiverse. Of course, that all cheers us up when we go into the countryside. I was at a nature reserve on Monday looking at a barn owl flying, and that just lifts the spirits, doesn't it? Oh. Yeah, amazing. And, you know, I've recently noticed I've got bats um, and um, just love the it at twilight when they come out. You know, I really, I just get so buoyed by having, you know, species that's so nocturnal and so unobvious. Yeah. Similarly, you know, we've, you know, I know we've got a badger set um, on our land, um, you know, and there's we've got deer down the bottom of um the, one of our fields, you know, they graze there in the in the early, early morning light. Um, yeah. It's just amazing, isn't it? And, you know, I live 10 miles from the centre of Birmingham. So, mm. you know, it's, anything it is, is possible. Around us. Yeah, and yeah, actually, yeah. some of our cities are more biodiverse than our countrysides because of the amount of wildflowers going in. So I'm a trustee of a charity in Liverpool called Scouse Flowers. And some of the biodiversity that's coming in, the gardens that we have, if we start to think in a more biodiverse way, um, they can be more biodiverse than our farmland, although that's an area that, again, we should be working on. Yeah, no, I, to I totally agree. And we're talking about whether we can buy some land and actually set it aside as an organisation yeah. in the UK and have it be, you know, usable by our customers. But, you know, there's all sorts of things that... It's all sorts it's, of ideas floating around. It's thinking innovatively as a as a create as a fellow creator. I I understand where you're coming from. Great, good, good, good. Well, perhaps we should get our heads together, and find the solution. Definitely. <laughs> let's, let's fix all the sustainability problems. Anthony. Let's sort it out, <laughs> Vicky. It's always great uh, meeting up and chatting to you. Obviously, virtually today, but uh, I really appreciate all your time that you've given, and also all the great work that you're doing across the whole sector. So thank you, thank you for coming in and um, becoming involved in the veterinary world. Oh, and thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me the airtime. Take care. Thank you so much, Vicky. Thanks everyone for listening. This is Anthony Chadwick from the Webinar Vet and this has been another episode of Vet Chats. Take care. Bye-bye.